Well, let me add a good morning um, to you as well. My name is, is Tim, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, um, this morning, especially if you've come and, and you don't have a Bible on you, uh, one of the things we do as a church, we, we preach through um, books of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Matthew 19. That's the, the passage I just read. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have them on the back table. You can grab one, um, turn there, and, uh, um, and, and follow us along there. And if, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab that. That's, uh, that's your gift um, to us, or we'd love to give that gift um, to you. Uh, well, last week we, uh, we talked about divorce and remarriage, and, and this week uh, there is almost as interesting a topic. And, uh, and so I want to pray and ask for God's help, and then jump in to, to answer this question this man has raised to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in, in the Bible it says that Jesus was light, um, and that that life was the light of, of, of men and women. And so I pray, God, that that you would shine the light of who Jesus is brightly before us as we, as we listen to how he answered this man's question so many years ago. How do you get eternal life? Shine that light in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you get eternal life? That's the question that this man has posed to Jesus in this moment, and it's a question that I've been asking myself. A couple weeks ago, I was in northwest Indiana, close to Chicago, for the Spanberg family reunion. As, as each year passes, I'm struck more and more by, by who is not there. And so this year was the first year my Uncle Bill wasn't there. He passed away on July 4th. And I rode to the, each year we have a Spanberg family golf tournament. And I rode to the Spanberg family golf tournament with my cousin Jimmy, who is, is now the last member of his immediate family. That His dad was Bill, my uncle. His mom was Judy, my, my aunt, my dad's sister, who has passed away a couple years ago. And then his brother, Keith, also has died. And so we went to the tournament. We played, uh, despite the best um, efforts of my uncles to trash talk me and belittle me uh, as much as possible, I was able to fend them off and, and win. And so we, we take it so seriously, we even have a trophy um, that we hand out to the winner. And so I got the trophy. The trophy we've, we've nicknamed the Millie. Um, because there's a picture of my grandma Spamberg, whose name was Mildred, whose nickname was Millie, um, on the trophy. And just for the record, I never called my grandmother Millie in my entire life. This, fact, this sermon, or first service sermon, may have been the first time I referred to her in that way. Um, but, but, but it's serious, and, and so her picture is right there, and, and I'm struck. She's been, she's been gone for six years, not at our, our family reunion. She died in 2010. And so in those spaces, I wonder where, where is my grandma now? Is she now? Now, how do you get eternal life, or can you even get eternal life? That if you want an answer to that question, you're already hooked for the sermon you're in. I probably don't have to do a ton of of work for you. You want to know, how does Jesus answer this this question? Or maybe you're you're not asking the question. This notion of eternal life is not pressing to you. It's not relevant. It's not a question you've asked yourself. Maybe you're a Christian and you feel that way, or maybe you're not a Christian, and, and life's just so good. It's just the thought of what happens beyond death doesn't matter because life is so good here. Well, what's interesting to me about, about this sermon, about this question, is that Jesus is going to answer the question for you if you want to know how to get eternal life. He's going to give you the answer to that question, but if, if you're not asking the question, if it's not relevant to you, if it's not important to you, Jesus is going to tell you why. He doesn't just answer the question. He also tells you why you're not asking the question. And so how do you get eternal life? 
Well, this man that has come to Jesus with this question, we're told three things about him, both in Matthew's gospel here as well as in the gospels of Mark and Luke, who also tell this story. And three things we're told about him. First is that he's he's rich. He has significant financial resources available to him. So he's rich. Secondly, we're told um, that he was a ruler, which most likely the commentators think that that means he was uh, some kind of synagogue ruler, which meant when you think of his wealth, probably don't think that he was like a billionaire or a millionaire. He was probably middle class or upper middle class. So he is, he's rich, he's middle class, he's a ruler of a local synagogue. And, and thirdly, we're told he's, he's young, probably in his mid-30s. And so this morning, if you're, there's quite a few of us in this room, if you're male, mid-30s, middle class, this guy is you asking Jesus this question. But the question he asks is slightly different than the question I was asking, how do you get eternal life? Because he comes to Jesus with an answer in mind. He comes, his question to Jesus is, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Which shows he's approaching Jesus and this question in the classically religious way. Right? The classic religious way to approach God is, what do I have to do to get eternal life? What are the rules I have to obey? That, that the way you get eternal life through religion is through obedience. And so the question isn't so much, how do you get eternal life? But what, what, obey, what commandments do you have to obey to get eternal life? That if I obey God, God will accept me. That's religion. And so Jesus responds to this question by, by saying two things. First, he, he kind of classically, Jesus gives us like really evasive, weird, unclear answer. The first thing he says to the guy is, so the guy comes question, what good deed do, my, do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus first tells him this. He says to him, why do, you, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Which is like, what, what are you even talking about, Jesus? Right? What's the point? And he doesn't really say. We don't really have a hint to what Jesus means there until later in the passage. But clearly Jesus is directing this man somewhere. And the second thing he says is he gives the man the answer the man is unsatisfied with. It's as if you would enter life, obey the commandments. And there's a couple things Jesus is doing there. One is, is he's sort of reshifting the question a bit, that, that often when we think eternal life, we think length of life. We think life forever after death. But Jesus slightly shifts that here, when he, because one, he says, if you would enter it, in other words, if you want it now, keep the commandments. So he, For Jesus, eternal life was never simply length of life. It was always quality of life. It was always the best life, good life, life that starts today in this moment and goes off into eternity. So that's one thing he's doing. But but secondly, more importantly, what he's doing, he's sort of, he's drawing out the man's questions because the man doesn't think that this answer is enough. That's why he's asking the question. The man doesn't think you can just say, keep the commandments. There's more that has to be said. And so he wants to know more. And so The second question the guy asked Jesus is, okay, which commandments do I have to keep in order to get eternal life? And how Jesus answers this question has always confused me because Jesus, he goes, he quotes the Ten Commandments, which isn't surprising to me. I'd expect him maybe even to go to the Ten Commandments. That's not surprising. What's surprising is Jesus doesn't start with commandment one. He doesn't even go to commandment two or three. He he quotes commandments five through nine, which just feels random and, and strange. Then when the guy asks Jesus, what commandments do I have to keep? Jesus says to him in response, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother. Why those? Why start with these commandments? 
And I was helped with that question this week by a commentator who said that what those five commandments have in common is that they are all externally verifiable. Like, you know if you're keeping those commandments or not. It's fairly obvious, obvious, right? You know if you murdered someone because they die, right? It's, it's fairly obvious that you killed someone or you didn't kill someone. That a, a sin like lying, that is, that is a fairly obvious sin, right? That, that in the midst of our current um, election season, we have, have some political candidates that, that's uh, struggling relationship with the truth is very verifiable, right? It's very obvious that there's some struggle with the truth there. That these are externally verifiable commands. You know if you're breaking them or not. And so the, the guy's response to Jesus, after he lists these command, commandments out to, them, out to him, is, is all these I've kept. Right? The proof is in the place. Jesus, you look at my life. I'm doing those things. What still do I lack? He asked Jesus. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? What he's doing, I think, is showing you that, that religion will not get you eternal life. Because religion, if you, if you try to approach God by, by obedience, that, that you say, I keep the rules, therefore God must accept me. I obey, therefore God must accept me. If, that, if that's how you approach God, one, you're not going to get eternal life. Because there's going to be two problems at the heart of that. that first, there's two problems with religion. First, I mean, there's a lot of problems with religion. But the, the two primary that are in this text is that first, religion is going to make you weird about what rules you keep and don't keep. Right? So if you relate to God through the rules, you, you can't just have, like, don't murder. Well, what is, what is murder? Like, right, is war murder or is self-defense? Like, you have to get into the details, which is why the guy, the guy says that's not enough. Like, which, I've done that, Jesus. Let's get more specific. And which means if you relate to God through the rules, through obedience, you have to get down to the, to the nitty-gritty details of how to keep the rules. There's no gray, gray area. It's all black and white. So, for example, when I, when I was growing up, my, my grandma Spamberg taught me how to play most of the card games I know how to play. That's so what we did when we went to her house. We'd play card games, we'd trash talk each other, and that's how, that's how we did things in the Spamberg family. And so when we went to my grandfather's 80th birthday party, um, which is a quick side note for those of you who are kids, birthday parties don't get better as, as you age, they get worse, right? A birthday party for an 80-year-old is way less fun than a birthday party for an 8-year-old. All right, so all my cousins and I were very bored, and so we're, we, we go to my grandfather's 80th birthday party. It was at their church. And so we go into a side room, we start playing all the card games that our grandmother had taught us. Um, and, and as we're playing, my grandmother storms in. She is angry at us, wondering why we're playing cards. She gathers all the cards up and storms out of there. Can't believe that we've done this. And I have no idea what just happened, right? Because we play card games at, with grandma. Like, that's what we do. What's the problem? And what I didn't, I didn't know the rule that um, if you play card games at your grandmother's table, that is okay. That is acceptable to God. You can get to heaven and do that. But... If you play those same card games in a church, that is not acceptable to God, and you may lose your salvation over it. Like, I, I didn't know that was a rule, right? And so if you are, listen, if that's how you relate to God, that is, you get weird, right? You get weird about the rules you keep, the rules that you don't keep. And listen, to not throw my grandmother in the bus, I do the same thing. Every person who relates to God that way, we have weird rules. And that's why Christians, religious people, oftentimes look very weird, because if, you, if that's how you're going to heaven, listen, you, you, can't leave, you can't leave an open possibility. You have to nail it down to the specific. That's one problem with religion. The, other, the bigger problem is that if you try to relate to God in that way, you're always going to be anxious. Because right, he's, he's deeply religious, this man who's come to Jesus. He's moral, he's good, he keeps the commandments. He's seeking out 
truth. He's humble. And yet he's convinced he, he's, got, he's got something wrong. He lacks something. Something's not right. Something's missing. And so I ask you, in, in your own faith life, do you ever feel that way? That God's not pleased with you? That he expects more? That you're letting him down? That there's more that you should be doing? That you're missing something? You, you better do more because God is beginning to look down upon you. That if that's how you try to approach God, I, I obey, therefore God will accept me. It, it will never work. You'll always be anxious. Because frankly, there's always more you should be doing. And there's always more you could be doing. But the problem with that is if that's how you relate to God, then, then listen, your relationship with God is based on your faithfulness, your obedience, your ability to keep the commands. And as I said, there will always be something missing there. There's always something you could be doing, always something you should be doing. And that's where this man lives. Okay, Jesus, I'm doing that. What still do I lack? What am I missing? He knows, as good as he is, even though you can look at his life, all the external actions are there. His faith is externally verifiable. But he's out of the kingdom, and he knows it. So how do you get eternal life? Well, first, not by what you do. Not by what you do. In other words, you... You will not get into, into the kingdom of God by having an externally verifiable life. And friends, in an externally verifiable culture where we, lit, we have to look a certain way, right? I mean, those of you students who went back to school this week, you feel that you better dress a certain way, you better look a certain way, right? We come into church and we feel like our marriages have to look a certain way, our kids have to act a certain way, our career prospects have to look a certain way, right? We want to look apart, we want to look good, and we think if we don't look good, well, either maybe we shouldn't go to church, or we try to hide those things and cover them up. And I just want to say, let this passage free us from that. This isn't a place to look apart or to think that our faith is something we externally verify with the way we look. Because that will not get you eternal life. That is not eternal life, looking like you are a Christian. And especially to those of us who have grown up in the church in a religious Tradition, we have got to have this point pounded into us again and again that you cannot have eternal life by external obedience to God. It's not enough. This guy is doing all of it. This guy's doing more than you will ever do in your life. He's more obedient than any of us will ever be, and he's not in because this is not how you get eternal life. You can keep all the rules. You can be moral. You can be a good, righteous, upstanding person and not know God. That's not the good life. And so how do you get eternal life? Well, one, it's not by what you do. And so the guy, then he, he's asked the question of Jesus. Okay, I'm, Jesus, I am keeping all of the rules, and it's not enough. What do I still lack? And Jesus, he says this in verse 21. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. So what's keeping this man from, his, from eternal life? His wealth. But Jesus is going to make this even worse for us because he's not just going to stop with this guy. He's then going to lean into every wealthy person. This guy, he, or Jesus says this to this man, and then he turns to his disciples and says this to them. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That what Jesus is saying here is, if you are wealthy, the kingdom of God, his kingdom, is going to be less attractive to you. 
And what I don't want any of us to hear that and think is that, yeah, that you're right. To those rich people, like, it is really, it's less attractive. No, the, the kingdom of God is less attractive to me because I am wealthy. And take a look at this graph behind me. And the graph shows the, the economic growth of the world over the last uh, couple thousand years. And if you noticed, uh, things are pretty terrible for most of human history. Um, and then if you notice, things about 150 years ago or so, like, got really good fast. And you and I, we live at the very top of that graph. Which means because of my place, in my culture, in my time, in my history, I am unfathomably wealthy to the rest of the world's experience. Which means when, when I say the kingdom of God is less attractive to the wealthy. I don't want those of us in this room to hear that and think that's some impersonal word that Jesus speaks to someone whom we hardly know. That, what that means for you and me is that because of our place and our time and where we live and our cultural reality, the kingdom of God is less attractive to me, to you. And so Jesus tells this guy to sell everything and give to the poor and then come follow me. Does that mean we have to do that? Does that is that what Jesus would say to us? Sell everything that we have. Well, Peter Brown, in his book on church history and wealth, how the church has approached wealth, has basically said the church has tended to have two problems. One comes right out of this passage. The other uh, has flourished very well in our cultural context, which is one problem is the prosperity gospel, which is that all Christians should be wealthy or that, that, that the, the dangers of wealth Jesus speaks to aren't, aren't spoken of here. And so there's, there's both kind of outlandishly prosperity gospel t- teachers who are on um, our TVs, and then there's, there's churches who are more soft prosperity gospel teachers who won't tell you that wealth is what wealth is, what Jesus says here. So that's one problem, um, which Jesus is speaking to here and we'll speak to this morning. But the, the other problem, which I need to bring out because I don't want us to go down the wrong track, which is, is, is what Peter Brown calls the poverty gospel. But what some have read in Matthew 19 and concluded is that, that being poor is good and being wealthy is, is bad, which is not what Jesus is saying. Here, and in fact, the storyline of the Bible speaks against that. And so, for example, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the world and creates humanity and puts humanity into the world, God's command to us is not to go and be poor. It's to be fruitful. It's to take this world he's given to us and make it into a, a more wealthy place, into a better place. And so wealth means better hospitals. It means better education. It means electricity, more efficient travel around the world. It means indoor plumbing, just pause. Praise God for a minute. Right? The, the God, God is not angrier, the, angry that we are wealthier today than, than our, our human forebears from 150 years ago. That's, that doesn't anger God. And moreover, in Revelation 21 and 22, when the new heavens and the new earth come, the new city, Jerusalem, the, 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 the new creation God is preparing for us is a place of gold, of ornate construction and architecture, of beauty. Right? It's not backwards camping. Okay? That's not what heaven is going to be. It's going to be a place of wealth. And so Jesus, he's not telling this man to sell everything because poverty is an inherent good that we should have. That's not what Jesus is doing. There's another reason he's telling this man to sell everything. Now, there's a tension in this passage, and a tension I can't solve for us this morning, but I want us to, to sit in. That, that the tension is between pull one, which is just what I spoke to, which is that wealth is not an inherent bad. It's not bad to be wealthy or to be Rich, that's pull one. Wealth is actually a good thing that God is driving all of human history towards. That's pull one. Pull two is that your wealth makes the kingdom of God less attractive to you. And we live in the tension between those two poles. And, and let me unpack that. What, what I mean when I say the wealth, your, our wealth, 
makes the kingdom of God less attractive to us. Think of, of if, if you're on Twitter at all, the hashtag first world problems. Um, this has been a bit of a joke going on. Those of us who are wealthy, we complain about our, our problems, which are ridiculous compared to those who are, are materially poor. Um, so just out of curiosity, I, I looked on Twitter, what are, what are the first world problems of this week? And just a few. Um, one was people complaining about fantasy football. Um, I don't know what they were complaining about with fantasy football, but that was a common theme. Lots of fantasy football complaining. Um, incorrect Starbucks orders and or restaurant takeout orders. That was a first world problem. My favorite, though, was that Uber has started um, a helicopter service. Right, so if you're not familiar with Uber, it's an app on your phone. You get a taxi de- delivered like to your, your, uh, to your doorstep by a phone. Well, they started a, an on-demand helicopter ride service. And so this girl was complaining that the, the Uber copter was going to take longer than just a normal Uber. And so today she'd have to travel by road and not air. Like when, when these are your problems, right, when, when on-demand helicopter rides take slower than you anticipated them, like... When those are your problems, the kingdom of God is necessarily going to be less attractive to you. All right, if those are your problems, then what Jesus offers you in the kingdom of God is going to be less attractive. Because you and I, basically every person in this room, we can buy our way out of our problems. We can vacation our way out of our problems. We can medicate ourselves with food or with drink, illegal drugs, out of our problems. And that's why many of us in this room, you have not even asked in weeks, how do I get eternal life? What is there beyond the grave? For me, that because we live in unimaginable wealth, we don't think about that. And so before we look down at this man who ultimately will leave Jesus in sorrow because he will not sell everything and go and follow Jesus, before we can look down on this man and think we get something that he doesn't, at least he's asking the question, at least he knows the life he's living isn't going to lead out into eternity, that something is missing from his life and it's deeply disturbing and distressing to him. And into humility, he goes to Jesus and asks for help. At least he's asking for help. This man, he's he's religious. He's deeply moral. He's concerned about his eternity. He's got all the external verifications that he's a man of of God. And yet, you look inside in his heart, it's black because he worships and loves his wealth more than Jesus, more than God. And so we're told, after Jesus told the man to sell everything so that he would have treasure in heaven and then come and follow Jesus, we're told he, he leaves in sorrow. He leaves sad. So how do you get eternal life? Well, it's, it's not by what you do. Religion won't get you there. It's not by what you have, because your wealth, it will blind you to the goodness of the kingdom of God. And that, that's a point I don't want to overestimate how earth-shattering this was to the disciples, because in that day, if you were externally righteous and wealthy, you were considered the, the cream of the crop. Right? And so when Jesus says, it's going to be really hard for rich people to go to heaven, the disciples stand back, and they, their response to that is, who, well, who, who can go to heaven? Who can get eternal life? If this guy is out, then who's in? Who, how do you get eternal life? If this guy doesn't have eternal life, who, who can have it? And so Peter speaks up in this moment. Because no doubt he's wondering, have I've left everything to follow Jesus. Have I left in vain? Because if this guy doesn't get in, I'm not getting in. So Jesus raises this question, or Peter raises this question with Jesus in verse 27 of Matthew 19. See then, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And following Jesus had cost them everything, and following Jesus will cost you everything. And so let's ask along with Peter, why, why should we? Jesus tells this guy, get rid of everything and follow me. Why should, 
Why should we be willing of that kind of sacrifice to follow Jesus? Well, here's how Jesus answers that question. Verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will receive eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So does everything make sense to you? Do you, do you see how you get eternal life? That when the man said to Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said back to him, there's only one who's good. He was referring to himself in that moment. Right? We see that later when Jesus says, there's a day coming, I'm going to sit on the throne and judge all of human history. What Jesus is saying in that moment is, I'm God. I'm the one good thing. Which is why Jesus answers this question, how do you get eternal life, the way he does. He doesn't give this man a list of things to do, although he does tell him to sell everything. But that's not how he gets eternal life. The Jesus' ultimate answer to that question, how do you get eternal life, is me. This phrase, follow me, follow Jesus, shows up three times in this passage. And when Jesus talks about selling, giving up for, um, for his kingdom, he doesn't just say, hey, you should just sell everything off because that's a good in of itself. No, it's, it's in light of, to the man, he says, sell everything you have so that you'll have treasure in heaven. And to the disciples, he said, what you've given up for my sake, you will receive 100 Fold back. Jesus, everything about this passage is him. It's about him. If you want eternal life, you have to follow him. That eternal life, it's a person. Life with Jesus is the best life, whether it lasts 10 years or whether it lasts a billion years. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? What is, what is Jesus calling this man and us to this morning? And I, listen, if you follow Jesus, there are three positions that you'll take up in your life that will be true of you that are in this, in this passage. Three positions that you have to take because they're positions Jesus takes in his own life. If you want to follow Jesus, three things. You have to get near the last, you have to look ahead, and you have to get low. So first, get near the last. And maybe you've been wondering this whole time why I read a passage about children um, and just the guy's question, like, did I read the wrong passage this, this morning? Well, verses 13 through 15 are there. These passages about, this passage about these, these children who come to Jesus, open-armed, and Jesus receives them. Because their response to Jesus is meant to run as a contrast to this man's response to Jesus. Right? The children, they're among the last in society. But they run to Jesus open-armed, wanting, desiring to be near him. This man, among the first in society, goes to Jesus closed-fisted and leaves sorrowful. And so earlier I said poverty is not a good thing in and of itself. And I mean that, but, but what, what is also equally true is that those who are poor, whether they're materially poor, socially poor, they are more likely to be open to the kingdom of God than you or I because of our wealth. Which means if you and I want to break through the way our wealth blinds us to the kingdom, you and I have to get near the last. We need to serve alongside the materially poor. We need to spend time along with the socially poor, whether they be minor, minorities, immigrants, other people that have less social Standing That Jesus spent most of his life around these types of people. And because, listen, when all I do is spend my time around other people who are like me, who are as wealthy as me, I spend my time with problems that are, are shallow and insignificant, and, and my wealth even more so blinds me to the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. And so one explicit connection Jesus is making here is between how the last respond to him and how the first respond 
to him. And one of those explicit connections he makes is with children. That if we want to make up for the way that the wealth, our wealth blinds us to the kingdom of Jesus, we need to spend more time with kids. That's why Matthew puts this, this approach of children to Jesus next to this approach of this righteous religious man. So it's one reason why this morning is sort of perfectly timed. We, we wanted to do a family service um, this morning and, and hand bag t- uh, backpack tags out to our, our kids. And so let, let the kids running around this morning be a reminder to you that they have insight into the kingdom that you don't because your wealth is blinding you to that. And so one way you can get near the last is, and I realize this seems shameless coming from a pastor, but one of the ways you can get near the last is to volunteer in, in children's ministry. And listen, this, this is something we need from you, just to be honest, because um, we have basically doubled our numbers of kids in, in the last year or so. We, we have all kinds of help we need um, back there. But the reality is you need far more help than we need, right? If you take this passage seriously, your wealth is far more a problem than us having not having enough volunteers on a Sunday. And so hopefully... Hopefully you can see that the children, they have an insight into the kingdom that you don't have. And so what do children know that we don't? Well, that, volunteer and find out. You spend time around kids and find out what they see at the kingdom. What would make them run to Jesus with open arms that makes us run away with clenched fists. So one, you need to get near the last if you're going to follow Jesus. Two, you need to look ahead. And so let's get to the question you all want me to answer that puts me on the hot seat. Jesus tells this guy, sell everything. So do we have to sell everything? Right? To, to, what, what do we have to give up? What do we have to give away? Just tell me. Give me the percentage. And the reality is, if, if that's what you want, you want religion. You want the rule. You want, I have to give X percentage and no more beyond that. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not giving us a rule to follow. And I can't give you a rule. But I can, I can say what Jesus is wanting all of us to do in light of this passage, which is every one of us should evaluate our wealth in light of eternity. That there are many people in our culture, maybe some in this room, who I think Jesus would say the same thing that he says to this man. He would come up to us and say, you have to sell everything. That this man, in in this moment, the the most gut-wrenching part for me is that he leaves in sorrow. Because you don't leave in sorrow if you think you're making the right decision. You leave in sorrow if you think you're making the wrong decision. Decision And this man's wealth is such, has such a hold over him. It, it has such power over him. He is so trapped by it. He can have eternal life staring him in the face, and he walks away from it to go back to his wealth. And surely it's not hard to look at our culture and conclude many people would do the same thing today. The debt people in our, our culture go into to maintain an appearance of a certain lifestyle the amount of money we, we gleefully, with, without much consideration or thought, spend on, on very trivial things. The fact that to most people in our culture, despite the graph, despite the, the, the amount of excessive wealth we live in today, most people think giving 10% of your income away is completely unattainable. It's, it's not possible. Now, there are probably definitely people who, in our culture who need to sell everything, get rid of it. The, because their wealth is going to keep them from the kingdom of God. And the reality is, I, I know it's not my job to ask that of anybody. Because that's Jesus' job. So I'm not, I'm not I can't say that, right? We, and, and in any way, there's not a rule here to offer. There's a tension. There's a tension. Wealth is it's a, it's a blessing. That's our future we're headed for. And yet it's also the thing that is most likely to keep you out of the kingdom. So I think the one thing I would say this morning is, is to look ahead. That Jesus twice... He tries to get this man to think ahead, to think of treasures in heaven. And he tells the disciples, what you've given up, you'll receive 100-fold in response. Which means for Jesus, wealth is not the problem. 
Wealth is, is not, wealth is a good thing that we're all headed towards. The problem is that we love the wrong kind of wealth. We don't love the wealth that God offers to us in his kingdom. We love the wealth of this world which blinds us to his kingdom. And so if you want to, to be cured for your wealth, a part of that cure may be selling some things off, but you could sell everything. It still, won't cure your, it still will not cure your problem with wealth. The real, true, deep cure to our love for wealth which blinds us to the kingdom is to look ahead to look to the kingdom to come, to store up treasures in heaven, to think of how we can use our wealth now to, to, in, to store up treasure for heaven later. That, that, to think with a long view, to look ahead, that is how we cure our wealth. To not look at our wealth down at our own hands, what we have, what we can indulge in here and now, but to look ahead to the kingdom to come of, of, of an inheritance that will be a hundredfold, of treasure that, that thieves cannot break in and steal and moth and rust cannot destroy. But the reality is there, there are people who will not see that, who will not look ahead, and their wealth will keep them out of the kingdom of God. Don't make that mistake. Look ahead. Get near the last. Thirdly, get low. And what I, what I mean by that is, is Jesus, his answer to this question, how do you get eternal life? It's to follow me, which assumes a posture of humility. You're behind. You're lower than. You're not as important. And so there, there's an irony at the heart of, of this passage, which is that there's nothing you could sell off to get into the kingdom. And there's no position, no too low. There's nothing you couldn't get rid of that isn't worthy of getting rid of for this kingdom. And so we, we have to approach following Jesus with this low position of there's nothing getting in between me and him. And if anything threatens to get between me and him, it goes away. I, I'm done with it. I can't, I can't put it between me and Jesus because he is eternal life. And maybe you hear all that and you hear, or you hear this command and you think, I can never do that. I can never live with that sort of sacrifice or that sort of humility or that sort of, of, of life. And, and the reality is you can't. And the only way that you ever will get close is you have to reflect on how Jesus himself sold everything off, right? He was at the right hand of the Father. He was on the throne of heaven itself. He sold it all off to enter life among us. And he lived life destitute with little on his, on, in his hands with little wealth to his name. In fact, even when he was crucified, the clothes off his back were taken from him. And as he was crucified, he watched people gamble for his own clothing. Literally, Jesus sold off everything. He died with nothing in his hands. And yet he did it for you and me, willingly, gladly, so that you and I could have his kingdom. And if you and I, if we try to approach the good life as if, it's, if it's, as if it's wealth, as if our wealth that we hold on to and we grasp in this life is anything compared to the wealth he offers us and what he's given to us through his son Jesus and what he's preparing for us in heaven, we're foolish. Or if you would rather relate to, to God through what you do, through obedience to his commands, haven't you seen everything Jesus has already done for you? What obedience could you give to him that's better than him dying on a cross for you? Don't relate to God that way. Come. This is so much better than religion, so much better than the wealth that you could accumulate for yourself. But how do you get eternal life? Jesus says, me, follow me. Let's pray.